Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia and welcome to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espina. We're talking with New Zealand and international experts looking at how our world will change in the wake of COVID-19. We're going to speak about how we live, how we govern ourselves, the future of our economies, the healthcare systems of the world and our environment. This episode, we're focusing on the economy. How will the pandemic affect the wealth of nations, our ability to look after the old and the futures that we leave for our young people? I'm joined by Philippe Legrain. He's an independent thinker, a communicator, a political entrepreneur. He describes himself as a passionate believer in openness. He's the author of four critically acclaimed books, including Open World, The Truth About Globalization, and Aftershock, Reshaping the World Economy After the Crisis. That crisis was the GFC, not the current one. Sir John Key is also with us. He was the Prime Minister of New Zealand, of course, between 2008 and 2016 and was also Tourism Minister for that time. He's returned to the commercial world post-politics, including directorships in two of the sectors we will talk about today, banking and tourism. Our third guest is Simon Mayer. Now, Simon is an ecological economist whose research interests include the history of economic thought and utopian economics. He teaches at Salford University and holds a PhD in ecological economics, an MA in environmental management, and a BSc in environmental science. Let's start, though, by getting a fix on the magnitude of the problem we are facing, of the challenge we are dealing with. And let's go to you firstly, uh, Sir John Key. What is the size of this? How, how deep, how bad, how long? Uh, I think you can run out of adjectives to describe it really, gone. I mean, you know, the reality is we're dealing with two viruses, uh, sorry, two crises running uh, concurrently, essentially a health crisis and obviously an economic crisis. And while one's creating the other, both of them are, you know, extreme in, in their making. I think the second thing is you've got a global aspect to this and, and more pronounced than we've seen probably even with something like the GFC, which obviously washed around the world. Um, but, you know, the, for instance, when that happened, China was in much stronger shape, for instance. It, um, it really was uh, a part of uh, the equation that actually helped the world out of the GFC, and certainly from New Zealand's point of view, as it became a more uh, significant trading partner, was a, you know, a real um, support mechanism. So I think, you know, that, that's, that gives you a sense of the, of the real scale. I mean, I think uh, ultimately um, the good news, if there is some, is that the banks at the moment are, Typically, you know, the problem child when it actually comes to recessions and, and economic crises. Um, this case, actually, uh, they're not starting out, at least in that position. From what we can see in our part of the world, uh, balance sheets are strong, liquidity is good. Um, and in fact, in our case, you know, customers are, for the most part, so far, doing pretty well. But obviously, there are big clouds you know, on the horizon and there are, there are issues. But I mean, I think it's it, it, to me in my mind the big challenge ultimately will be how quickly can we get to a position where we can return to some full normality will that take a vaccine and can the world actually even deliver one and then the second bit i think will be just what is the shakeout from the economic perspective how long can some companies uh, hold on um and and you know and ultimately when does confidence return to the consumer and Philippe, you wrote, studied the GFC uh, pretty carefully. How does it compare with that, in your view? Oh, well, this is, uh, like uh, John said, it is an order of magnitude bigger. In fact, it, it in some respects, compares to the 1930s, certainly uh, in uh, the speed of the collapse uh, and, and unprecedented in the fact that, you know, half of the global economy has basically uh, been shut down by government fiat. 
Um, uh, but I think there's still um, a lot of optimism around, certainly um, in financial markets, that this is going to be what's called a V-shaped uh, recovery, that even though um, the collapse has been um, uh, severe, that the bounce back is going to be uh, equally strong. Uh, and I think that that is um, completely uh, delusional. Uh, it's completely delusional because um, for the foreseeable future, we're going to have uh, crippling uncertainty, uh, not just about how um, uh, the virus uh, is going to pan out, but also uh, in terms of how uh, economies are going to be able to cope uh, and policymakers um, uh, respond. Uh, that, you know, the idea that you can simply shut down an economy, uh, even an advanced economy with the exceptional government support measures that's being provided, and suddenly just flick a switch and it, 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 it gets going again, uh, it, it, I think is is not true. Uh, I think the idea there's going to be you know a V-shaped recovery uh, is nonsense. And I think obviously financial markets, partly with help from central banks, um, have got got ahead of themselves um, massively. Uh, I think if you ask um, the ordinary person in the street how do they see the future, they've, it's never been more uncertain. Uh, and in that in that kind of scenario, um, I think that this is going to be a, a lasting crisis potentially. Um, like the GFC, which has aftershocks which last for a whole decade. Simon, um, a V-shaped recovery, delusional, nonsensical. Um, <laughs> do you share those sentiments? Um, yes, basically. I don't think we're going to see anything like a V-shaped recovery. I think this idea of returning to normality kind of underplays the role that our kind of economic systems played in us not being able to respond well, not being able to respond rapidly to this kind of crisis. And given that we know with things like climate change, other crises are coming, I think a return to normality is a mistake. What we need is a real transformation to a more kind of resilient economy. Okay, I'll return to some of those themes um, because they they are really interesting. You, and I've read some of your um, thinking on this and, and you believe it is an opportunity to to create a new kind of economy. So we will get to that. I'm just intrigued, though, um, and I'll come back to you, uh, John Key. Why is the share market? Um, the S and P 500 had its best mm. month since January 1987. I mean, what do they what do they know that we don't? I think the cynical answer would be, I don't know, but I wish they'd tell us so we can work it out. Um, Look, I think ultimately, if you think about the share market, I think my own view is that they're responding in part to the fact that they see a very long period of extremely low interest rates. And so if you believe that that's the picture, uh, then then ultimately, for those that have investable income, and you've got some, you know, not the same drawdowns and the likes, you know, just gigantic um, funds around the world, whether they're real money funds or hedge funds or you know, private equity, whatever it might be, it needs to find a home to use that capital and if the interest rate bond markets are very, very low, then then maybe they're arguing there'll be better returns somewhere else. I think it also varies a little bit when you look at the S&P, obviously, or the Dow Jones, it measures the average across the index. But if you look and drill down within some of those stocks, what you are seeing is some you know pretty significant declines in certain stocks, um, but others obviously doing you know a lot better. And so it's not surprising that a company like Zoom, for instance, would be doing extremely well because we're all on at the moment. It's not surprising that Amazon's coming through this well because, you know, again, uh, we're, all, we're all shopping online. Um, but then there are other companies which clearly, you know, for instance, uh, I'm guessing if you were Airbnb, you know, pre-IPO, but if you were Airbnb, looking like it was going to go to the market pretty soon, that looks to me to be a lot more challenging given, you know, no one's traveling very much. So it does vary within the sector. But I mean, to the point that Philippe was making, you know, uh, you have to have really heroic assumptions, in my view, to believe it's a V-shaped recovery. Um, and, and that's simply because of the destruction that's happening to, you know, the, the economy globally, um, you know, the, the utter destructions in some sectors, you know, massive sort of like that. So in my mind, at least, um, it is an interest rate story. I'd want to be pretty cautious, is my own view. Well, let's talk about that then and move to government response. I mean, if you look at a crisis like 9-11, George W. Bush famously said, um, go shopping. But, um, you know, we can't shop our way out of this one, can we, Simon? We can't, that's the difficulty with the stimulus because it isn't really the, uh, the answer this time, is it? Yeah, no, but the bottom line is that you, at least until you have a vaccine, you have to stop people from mixing, right? And so you have, basically, people have to stay at home. And so that means that 
the, the entire idea of stimulus is to get people out there, get people mixing, get people back in workplaces, get them in shopping centers again. And so it just goes against everything you, like all the medical advice, all the kind of epidemiological advice. And so, I mean, I, I think John's right. I think what we're seeing is that what happens is when you stop all of that, when you kind of shut that kind of market economy activity down, it has, devita has devastating effects. Uh, and so again, for me, the, the kind of a big lesson from this crisis is how do we design an economy which doesn't destroy people's lives when it has to be paused for a while? Is that possible? I mean, what, what would an economy like that look like? You're talking about a scaling back of production somehow as an answer, are you? What? Yes, basically. Um, we know that production, not all production has stopped now, right? So we've protected certain kind of key industries. And really, I think that's part of what that's highlighting is how much of our economy does stuff which we don't really need. Um, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this... Um, you know, kind of everything about a lockdown or anything really about a lockdown is a good thing. But I do think that COVID is really highlighting is which bits of the economy are really essential to our lives and which bits are kind of important because of the way we've built the economy, but which we could do without and do differently. Philippe, um, what yeah. um, do, are you seeing in terms of governments that are getting a response right um, what should we be doing in terms of a government response to this economically? Yeah, I'd like to take uh, a issue with two things that Simon said. First of all, I don't think that governments are actually providing stimulus. Uh, they're providing support, which is different. Uh, central banks are uh, providing uh, liquidity um, uh, on the basis that that is the issue at hand. And that's part of the problem that companies face. But I think the other problem that they're going to face is solvency problems. And that's something that um, uh, central banks can't cope with, i.e. it's not just they face cash flow problems, it's that many of them are going to go bust. Uh, what are governments doing? Governments aren't stimulating either. They've shut down uh, large parts of the economy. What they're doing is they're providing insurance. Uh, they're trying to support uh, the uh, incomes of workers and they're trying to um, support the cash flows um, of businesses so that they can survive uh, this shutdown. The stimulus will come uh, once the lockdowns um, uh, are lifted and that's when it will be necessary. And then we'll see um, how effective those measures are, given that um, you know, some of the shutdown of the economy is not due to government action, but due to the fact that people are simply you know, scared to go out and, and spend and move around. I'd also take issue with somehow the idea that this, this crisis you know, highlights a choice between the sort of valuable parts of the economy and those that aren't. I think that's kind of a false choice. I mean, basically, uh, governments about, around the world have been forced into lockdowns because of a lack of preparedness uh, for a pandemic, despite the warnings from Bill Gates and, and others that this is likely, despite the dry run we had with SARS uh, in Asia. And you've seen actually that uh, many Asian governments have done much better. They've been much more effective, perhaps not the New Zealand, but much more effective than many European and certainly the United States uh, in um, limiting uh, the number of deaths uh, through mass testing and tracing without actually imposing lockdowns and therefore without the punitive economic cost. And therefore, we've been forced into this trade-off, but actually, uh, we don't need, we, with better preparation, we wouldn't need to make that trade-off. And in future, hopefully, governments will be better prepared, and so we don't need to make it. To go one step further, I would say, you know, simply to, to say that the, the parts of the economy that have been kept going are the ones that are essential, and the, re the ones that have been shut down uh, aren't uh, uh, important. Well, that, that's not the case. Um, the, the parts of the economy that have been shut down, um, and most people would say, um, uh, that travel uh, or socialising with friends are, are important. Uh, we're just simply doing without them temporarily um, for the sake of a public health emergency. Once we emerge from that emergency, once we have a vaccine, those are things which are desirable and which you want to get going again. In fact, some would say actually um, uh, they're part of the joy of life and therefore incredibly important. Simon, do you want to respond to that? I mean, I would almost, I would not put those within, I mean, socialising with friends is not something which comes under kind of a market economy lockdown, right? And actually, a lot of what we've seen in the UK is that actually kind of non-foundational parts of the economy have been encouraged to keep going, to keep the market economy going. We've got non-essential construction, lots of non-essential work still happening. So, John, if I could come to you, um, if we are going to get into situations where governments take on a lot more debt, and that is going to be pretty clear. 
are we then going to go into the austerity cycle? Now, I know you were Prime Minister in the GFC. Um, you guys were careful about the response afterwards, but you had a lot of what we called zero budgets where you didn't spend new money for quite a number of years. And um, it was important for you and the finance minister at the time to get back in, in the black, and you did that eventually. What, is there a risk here that we're going to rack up a lot of debt and then go through this austerity cycle to try to, to, try to pay it back? Does the response need to be different this time? I think it really depends on which country you are. I mean, if you look at the United States and you look at its national debt levels at, you know, north of $20 trillion now and, you know, the response of um, the Trump administration, which is, you know, huge amounts of cash being pumped into the system. Um, you know, I, I worry both about the nominal amount of debt they actually now have, but I, I actually worry even prior to COVID-19, not about even the quantum of debt, but the fact that there's probably no figures I've seen coming out of the budgetary office that indicate they'll ever be back in surplus. I mean, it's, a, it's really a living beyond your means um, system that they've had operated quite a long period of time. But the truth of the, of the matter is that if you're the United States and arguably even the United Kingdom and other countries, um, their capacity to always fund themselves and, and to do so you know, at, at low and, at, uh, rates relative to the rest of the world and relative to LIBOR is um is is real but if you take a country like new zealand i've always been a bit of the view right or wrong uh that we're a little country we're at the bottom of the world no one owes us a living we always have had a risk premium on our bonds issues even you know even in the great times and so if we amass too much national debt then i really worry about that not just because future generations ultimately got to pay for it but we're just in a fundamentally riskier position for instance and I think, you know, when it comes to the response, I mean, you know, you can argue about each individual component piece, whatever you think about those things. I thought there were some things, for instance, you know, the, the Rudd administration after the GFC decided to give every Australian, I think, $900. Um, you know, New Zealand Tourism had a great run out of that because we marketed a, a package at, at $8.99 Aussie for people to come over. And I think Tab Corp had a pretty good run in Australia out of it. But was it the best use of money? In my personal opinion, no. But, for instance, is the wage subsidy that the government's got operating in New Zealand, and I'm sure there are many variations there around the world, is that sensible in my view? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're, you, you're, you know, to point, when you're trying to hold people in the game for, for a period of time. So I think it depends. But I, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm just naturally cautious, and I kind of think, you know, ultimately, if you come from that school of at some point when you borrow money, you've got to repay it, um, then I... Do you think that puts a burden on future generations of whatever country you come from um, to pay that? And also, it's about choices. And I mean, you know, we've raised the issue of, well, okay, why aren't governments better prepared for, say, for instance, a pandemic? Here's the answer. It costs a hell of a lot of money for that preparedness to be in perfect shape, ready to go. Now, people might want to disagree with me, but the truth of the matter are politicians live in short-term cycles, three, four, five-year election cycles. There's always a constituency for every dollar of expenditure, and some of them earn votes more than others. And I suspect if you say to people, I'm spending money building you a new road or giving you a tax cut or going out and, and spending a bit more on, on grandma's health, um, that just works a whole lot better than saying I'm stacking up a whole lot more PPE gear that we might need one day when a, you know, when a pandemic comes. That's the harsh reality of modern-day politics. It's hard, isn't it, Philip, to um, to prepare for something like this? Or do you think that we realistically should have been uh, better organised to, to deal with something of this magnitude? Well, I think it's certainly something that um, uh, experts um, have been warning about, uh, that it was a, a very real risk. And actually, the cost ahead of time uh, of event investing in preventive measures uh, isn't um, huge. Uh, in terms of uh, the debt, uh, I think that, you know, I think it would be a big mistake if governments were to engage um, uh, in um, the kind of austerity they engaged with um, after the uh, GFC, um, because uh, the, the burden fell often uh, on um, uh, the poorest and the most vulnerable. And the result of that has been a polarization of politics and the rise of nationalism and populism and ultimately um, uh, threatened so many um, uh, good things. Uh, I think that in the short term, 
um, there is ample opportunity uh, for a government to be able to uh, borrow and spend. Um, and there's ample opportunity for central banks to help them in so doing, at least in advanced economies, uh, by buying those bonds, whether it's um, through QE uh, or other measures, for the simple reason that we live in a world not of inflation, but of deflation. And in a world of deflation, there isn't enough demand in the economy. And, and therefore, uh, central banks and governments can cooperate. The big issue comes is that when at some point in the future we come back into what used to be seen like a more normal economy where the central bank's role is to try and um, uh, keep tabs on excessive spending on the economy to prevent inflation coming out when we reach that point uh, how are we going to react now is that going is the reaction going to be um, uh, you know mass debt write downs uh, is it going to be further monetization in which case the likelihood is that we get out of this through inflation at some point down the line um, uh, which um, uh, would, you know, in effect, write down those debts. I think we're a long way away from that now. For, for, the, for the immediate term, the problem is going to be a deflation, not enough spending in the economy. And it's important that both governments and central banks do their best um, uh, to prop up the economy and indeed uh, to ensure a stronger recovery. Okay, you're talking about a return to uh, a normal economy, and I think Simon doesn't want to return to a normal economy, and so we'll come to that in just a second. But I just want to explore this idea of um, monetary financing. So, and I'll probably expose my own ignorance here, but effectively, this would be a central bank just creating money and giving it to a government. What's wrong with that? I mean, John Key, you've been both a prime minister, um, helped run an economy, and also had major roles in banks. You'd be pretty well placed to tell us. Why can't the a central bank just give a government tens of billions of dollars? Well, I think they are running around thinking about spending 50 billion. From what I hear from some of the cabinet papers, so I don't think you do. You're too far off, you are. But seriously, um, I mean, the, the problem there is inflation, right? But it's nowhere yeah. to be seen. So, no, I think inflation, you're right. Look, historically, you'd say, okay, if you print money, you would get money in the system. However, you, whatever mechanism you do like that, and you flood the place with cash. Um, you know, one issue has historically been inflation. I happen to agree with Philippe, you know, the odds of inflation coming back anytime soon, given what's happened with oil prices and actually what's happening with new energy technologies and all those sorts of things, you know. I mean, yeah, I think that risk is pretty low. But there's another risk, actually, and I think and that sort of links a bit in why, I mean, I certainly absolutely support governments and, and our government spending clear money supporting people. Um, and it sort of comes back to that argument, isn't it, that, you know, monetary policy needs mates, because the problem that you have when you just flood them with cash is you're assuming they're going to make the right decisions when you give them the money. And I think the worry is that you have a lot of cash, you don't have good feedback loops, you get a lot of the money going into the system, and the question is, does it get spent in the right place? I just look at it and say, okay, sure, if you can tell me they're building infrastructure we need, that they're doing all the things we need, good on you, but, but I worry about it. And to, to go back to the monetary policy needs mates, it's really simple just to say it's all about money. But is it solely about that? I mean, you know, the government's made some tentative moves in New Zealand to say, well, let's improve, the, you know, we'll make the RMA a little bit easier, the Resource Management Act. Well, actually, if that makes it easier for some companies to do some things, as long as it's not stupid stuff, um, I reckon that's a good thing. I think we can just, we're in a world that's been around since the GFC and, and you know, quantitative easing, but if the answer absolutely everything is flood the place with cash. And I'm just, yeah, I, I, I get it. It's absolutely a need for that liquidity, but, but it's not the only answer to every problem we face. Simon, let's bring you back in here. You, from the reading I've done of your thinking on this, think it's an opportunity to do something different from the sort of consensus around free market economies that we've had for the last 30 years or so. What is it that you would like to see uh, this crisis use as an opportunity to, to do to reshape our economy? Uh, I suppose I just kind of want to pick up on this idea of it's an opportunity, right? Like it's I'm not sure I would use the word opportunity. Like I, I would say it's a moment of change. And I, I think that change is coming one way or the other, as in there are kind of very powerful uh, actors who have like very um, big interests in the way the economy is run now in kind of attempting to strengthen their own position in markets. And they will attempt to push that. And we see that, we see that happening now. And they will push their own changes through. 
what I'm kind of advocating for is that this also opens up kind of a moment of change for something um, I would say kind of more humane and just a, a better way of, of doing things, right? Which is that we know there are all kinds of crises, uh, social and ecological coming and unfolding around us right now. So this is uh, all kinds of things around um, everything from, let's say, participation of disabled people uh, in all aspects of society to the unfolding climate crisis. The things that I would personally like to see are around things taking basic essentials out of the market, essentially. So taking things like food and shelter out of the market. One thing that will do is that if you have another crisis like this in the future, where your market economy effectively has to shut down, is it won't be as devastating for people. Because it will mean that if you lose your job, you're not at risk of losing your home. You could do this through a kind of, uh, you can do any of these things through a very kind of state-centered model. So something like a uh, national food service, let's say, or you could do it through a more kind of um, community provisioning model, uh, where you kind of, you create the material uh, support to enable communities to do kind of a, uh, uh, more kind of co-ops, more mutual aid groups, that kind of thing. You're listening to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guyan Espiner, about how our lives will change in the wake of COVID-19. I'd hate to look like we're beating up on Simon, but can I offer a slightly counter view, and that is that and, you know, I might be at cross purposes here, but you go back to the New Zealand economy, you know, back in the, the Muldoon days, it was a very close, you know, it was fortress New Zealand, very close economy. There wasn't really a market-based economy. And, and actually, as we've become exposed to a real market-based economy globally, we've become far better at producing a product that people actually want in quantities that they want. And actually, even things like climate change have been addressed and be, increasingly being addressed through that, as, as consumers themselves have said, you know, very strongly, we, you know, we want a more organic product and we want you to care for your environment and we want you to demonstrate all those things. I mean, I think the market actually drives in the end often the right behaviour. I know a lot of people wouldn't agree with that, but I actually think it drives, you know, structural and behavioural change. And with, again, without that, you know, you go back and have a look at those, you know, Soviet Union uh, countries and have a look at what they did prior to, you know, opening up their borders and have a look at what they do today. I think, I think it's better today. But our response in a crisis like this, I mean, is, and as the old joke goes, you know, everyone is a socialist in a crisis. If you look at the UK, Spain, Denmark's uh, response, I mean, it's something approaching state capitalism as an approach. Um, in New Zealand, about north of 40% of people are on a government subsidy yeah, well, look at the risk of dominating the conversation. I mean, you know, as you say, everyone's a socialist in a crisis. But my only my only basic point would be there are times when the private sector can't respond. These are one of them because fundamentally the marketplace economy is shut down because of a health crisis. So actually it's a little bit like saying, should a government ever run a, a deficit? Of course it should when, you know, when, you know, because you're the balancing, you're the balancing part of the equation and in, in bad times in the economy, the automatic stabilizers cut in and of course you're going to have to pay out. But but my simple point is overall, if you really look at overall, I think um, the world has driven enormous change through the market. And if you go and have a look at, I don't know, any of these tech companies actually, there's been huge amounts of capital because of the market coming to those tech companies, many of them climate change focused. Look at the, look at the increasing both global demand and capital being applied to plant-based meat, for instance, whether it's beyond meats or impossible foods or whatever. All these kind of guys are responding to what's happening in the marketplace. Capital is there because of that. Consumers are aware because of that. I, I, I don't know. To me, I think this is just an extreme point in time. But as if you're asking what it should be like under normal circumstances, I think too much government leads to the wrong outcomes and bad allocation of resources. But, you know, it's been like a bullet. Philippe? Oh, it's certainly true that governments have rightly taken on a much bigger role uh, in a medical and an economic uh, emergency. What they haven't been doing, though, is setting up national food services. It's still uh, food grown by, by private farmers 
uh, sold uh, by private supermarkets. And after the initial panic buying, that system works well. It doesn't seem to me that the role for government is in providing a national food service. It is acting as an insurer of last resort uh, in a crisis like this. Uh, it is also um, uh, there to uh, provide the necessary stimulus uh, when um, uh, it's right to, to do so. Uh, while I, I think, therefore, to kind of junk the market system would be a mistake, I think it is clear um, uh, that there are all sorts of reforms um, uh, which could be made uh, to make the system uh, fairer uh, and to make the system uh, more resilient that give you the, the, the benefits of market dynamism um, at the same time as you know, greater stability and, and, and greater um, uh, social justice. So it's, it's quite obvious, for example, that you know, we all think it, well, many of us think it's fantastic that you can have um, uh, food from uh, delivered uh, cheaply to your home um, by uh, food delivery services. At the same time, the people who deliver those services are often um, uh, you know, self-employed with no um, protection whatsoever on meager wages. Uh, and you've seen that actually um, uh, there's going to be a big debate about whether those people ought to be better protected and better paid uh, than they have been previously. Or, uh, for example, um, that uh, we thought that the key workers in an economy potentially um, uh, were bankers. And actually, while there's an important role for finance, there's also an important role for the people who are uh, keeping us um, safe, um, who are you know, working in hospitals, not just as doctors, but also as porters and cleaners and so on. And, and that that there would be a social re-evaluation of what really, what, what really matters. So it's not a question of junking the market economy, but it's a question of putting in reforms um, to ensure that the proceeds of growth are better shared and, so, and that um, our sense of value as a society, what we care about, uh, is uh, better reflected. Uh, because very often what, what happens is that the cost of change uh, and the cost of disruption fall on those people who are least able um, to bear it. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's not just um, economically damaging. Uh, in a crisis like this, I think it's also seen as morally wrong. So I think there is an impetus for, for reform there. Simon, do you think that uh, that re-evaluation will happen? I mean, many of us have talked about this, haven't we? The, 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 the guy on minimum wage at your supermarket is, uh, is suddenly an essential worker to your life and who's actually really putting their lives on the line. Um, so meanwhile, some CEOs are sitting at home wondering, um, people are wondering what they did in the first place. Um, do you think we are going to have that uh, re-evaluation ourselves or do you reckon we're going to just uh, return back to normal? I, I think it depends. So I don't see how, without really questioning, really changing that role for markets in our society, you get people uh, who are currently on low pay to be paid more. Um, it's, a, it's a fundamental conflict, I think. I also just really want to push back on what Sir John was saying about this idea that kind of private capital and markets are really delivering for us on climate change, because <laughs> they're not. I mean, yes, we see kind of some small movement towards a bit more renewables, a bit more plant-based meat. We also see massive, massive growth in global carbon emissions. And that growth in global carbon emissions correlates incredibly well to the Industrial Revolution, to the birth of capitalism, and to the rise of massive market economies. To, to say, oh, well, in the last kind of decade, we've had a bit more kind of interest in plant-based meat, therefore climate change is going to be solved by the markets, just seems incredible to me. Well, I don't think it will be in total, but I do think um, pretty strongly, actually, that you will see technological change and, and through technology and better science, some of those issues around climate change will resolve. I'm not saying all of them, but if you think about, you know, something like meat and, and, and food, it's, you know, particularly the meat sector, it's 18% of world emissions. And arguably, if the world went to only eating plant-based meat, actually, you'd, you'd be a long way towards solving climate change. I mean, again, if you think about you know the advent of electric cars and electric transportation, I mean, again, you know, science is playing an amazing role there, and, and so is Tesla. Yeah, <laughs> the stock of its production. I mean, same story. I mean, you're starting to see a lot of a lot of change. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I accept the argument that there's going to be a home for capital where it makes a return, and I accept that you know there's a long way to go. I'm not saying all these issues are solved. I'm just simply saying to you that. You know, there is, you know, it depends on the structure of your system. But again, if you take a country like New Zealand, we introduced an emissions trading scheme. We started pricing carbon 
and actually that did see capital dramatically change where it was allocated. With the entire time I was Prime Minister, there was never a fossil fuel power plant um, established in New Zealand. All the money went to wind farms or geothermal um, power stations. So you, you can change you can change where capital is allocated. Let's move to um, globalisation, which has been another big force over the last few decades. Do you see this as a blow for globalisation, Philippe, this pandemic? Uh, yes, I, I, I do. Um, I think, you know, remember this pandemic started um, in uh, China um, and led to uh, the disruption of um, all sorts of supply chains of Western companies that basically uh, produce uh, in, in, in China. Uh, and what that highlighted um, was um, the fragility uh, of um, much of the production um, that uh, we rely on. And I think that as a result of that, you know, companies um, are increasingly going to look um, to provide um, more resilient production. What does that mean? Well, in part, it means they're going to diversify away from China and, and produce, say, in, in Vietnam or, or Indonesia. Uh, I think, um, perhaps not in the case of New Zealand, but certainly in the case of the US and, and, and Europe, they're going to uh, produce um, uh, closer to home. So, you know, European companies in Eastern Europe or, or North Africa, American ones in, in Mexico. Um, and that at the same time, using new technologies like robots or 3D printing, uh, that some production is going to happen um, back home. So I think that's one blow um, to globalization. Uh, I think perhaps um, the, the bigger blow to globalization is that, you know, in theory, this crisis ought to be um, uh, 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 requires international cooperation. The virus cuts across borders. It doesn't respect them. Uh, it affects everybody. At the same time, what we've seen throughout this crisis is mostly been uh, every government uh, for uh, itself. Uh, and we've seen, you know, while, while this could have been an opportunity for the US and China to collaborate, instead, President Trump calling it a Chinese virus and the Chinese spreading all sorts of uh, disinformation um, uh, back back and therefore uh, the the geopolitical tensions that existed between those two countries being uh, even greater um, the threat to trade that that poses um, being uh, magnified uh, the arbiter of global trade uh, the world trade Organi trade organization uh, increasingly increasingly uh, sidelined um, uh, and then we've seen uh, how many countries have brought in you know curbs on exports or whether it is medicines or food and therefore actually you know I don't agree with President Trump at all but actually his argument somehow meant much production uh, ought to be localized for national security grounds um, suddenly is going to have um, a much wider currency because people are going to say and are, are saying well actually this is an essential we you know, we can't rely on foreigners uh, for our food we can't rely on foreigners for our um, uh, medicines we can't rely on our foods foreigners for and the list is going to get longer and longer and longer and therefore that is open season for everyone who wants to relocalize production now personally i think that uh, that would be um, a mistake but i think that's certainly the way um, that uh, the wind is blowing simon do you see the wind blowing that way and is it a wind that um that doesn't do anyone any good I think it's it's really very hard to tell. And, and this is partly why I say when this is kind of a moment for change, because Philippe is right, like there are going to be these kind of uh, pressures and we're going to see even particularly political pressures around kind of relocalizing production and you'll get kind of these kind of nationalist populists using this, I think, as a, as a vehicle to move. But I also think they're going to be up against some serious opposition. What will be interesting to see is which is the stronger pull. Is it the pull from the kind of the big globalized corporations or these kind of uh, more local interests around localization? John Key, these sorts of movements could be quite harmful, couldn't they, for a small trading nation like New Zealand? Yeah, although funny enough, actually, they might, in a weird, weird kind of way, um, be advantageous, actually, versus it might sound. Um, because I think actually if you take a step back for a second and say pre-COVID-19, what, what were we seeing? Well, we were already seeing this trend towards nationalisation, populism, and certainly a breakdown, I think, in the relationship between China and the United States. And, and I think the simple reason for that has been that 
it's actually um, the political uh, viewpoint in the United States, actually across both Republican voters and Democrat, uh, Democratic voters, is whether it's right or wrong, is that China doesn't play fair, it steals our intellectual property, and we've effectively gone backwards uh, from engaging in, in, in a fight where we've got one arm tied behind our back. And that's why I think Donald Trump's taken the position he's taken in terms of trade with the US, uh, sorry, with China, because what he says is, uh, I think, in his own mind, if I stand up to the Chinese and I ultimately get a better deal as a result of it, um, then good on me, I've proven that I've got the art of the deal and I'm a good deal maker. And by the way, if I don't get a deal, <clears throat> support my supporters will like that uh, and my popularity in terms of, of the way I handle this issue, trade will improve actually because I'm seen to standing up to the guys that aren't playing fair. And that's and that is absolutely true, I think, in terms of what you see in the US. This has just taken that to a whole new level. So um, the relationship's clearly getting worse and deteriorating by the day. The only reason why I say could they would be better for New Zealand is that if you think about our major trading partners, we're no longer Britain's little farm. Um, you know, they're an important trade trading partner for us, but quite a long way down the order. Um, number one, of course, remains Australia, although pretty close in goods and services, arguably China is bigger now. And so if the United if China isn't buying from the United States, uh, then maybe they're going to favour their purchases to New Zealand. Now, that depends a whole lot on many, many different uh, circumstances and outcomes. It depends how the government handles it. But, you know, there's always going to be, you know, with that growing middle class in, in China, um, huge demand for what we produce. So ironically, you know, uh, we might actually have better trade links into China as a result of it's not worse. But globally, no question, I think, free trade is really out of favour and, and, uh, and going backwards. Philippe, would you agree with that? You've spent a good deal of your career uh, promoting the advantages of, of free trade. Do, do you see a return to economic nationalism and even a ditching of this idea of comparative advantage from people just manufacturing things themselves? We had the Deputy Prime Minister of our own country in New Zealand saying we should manufacture things here even if they cost 15% more. And, you know, there, there's an audience for that sort of, um, for those sorts of thoughts. Sure. I mean, I, I also worked for uh, your late Prime Minister, Mike Ball, when he was Director General of the World Trade Organization. Um, and he would be very saddened um, to see uh, what is happening uh, to um, globalization. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, Sir John is right, potentially, that New Zealand could be, um, uh, could benefit from a diversion of trade um, from the US uh, to New Zealand. Uh, I think that though there is a bigger risk. Uh, which is potentially that relations between the US and China get so bad uh, that in effect countries are forced to choose. Uh, and if that were to be the case, then that would be an invidious position for a country like New Zealand, uh, given that, you know, uh, uh, culturally and as a democracy, uh, and uh, it is uh, clearly uh, in a so-called Western uh, ambit, at the same time, increasingly economically, uh, it is reliant uh, on China. And if you come into a kind of new Cold War situation where countries are forced to choose, uh, then uh, and uh, you, you could easily say, uh, you could easily envisage such a world uh, developing, and then it would be a very difficult um, situation indeed um, uh, for uh, New Zealand. Uh, I, I think more broadly, um, clearly, you know, there are very, the, the arguments that drove globalization before um, uh, still apply. Um, uh, that, you know, producing uh, internationally and benefiting from um, uh, greater uh, di diversity uh, uh, and um, lower costs of trade uh, means that there are uh, strong reasons why companies are going to want to source uh, uh, internationally. At the same time, I think now the political momentum, which has been building uh, since um, at the GFC, even more so with uh, the election of President Trump, and now exacerbated by uh, the COVID-19 crisis, uh, is the momentum is towards um, a fragmentation. That doesn't mean we go back to the kind of 1930s with like massively high tariff walls everywhere, but it does mean that you're going to have many more obstructions to trade than there were before. And it's not just in physical trade, it's also in digital trade. You know, for example, more and more more and more trade is digital. In the first wave of digitalization, that has created a possibility for much more internationalization. You know, you can, if you're, if you're producing services and you're doing it electronically, you can sell internationally very easily. Increasingly though, you're saying governments actually, well, the world is 
the, the economy is increasingly digital and we want to control it and so we want to ensure that you know have data lo localization requirements we have, want to have um, uh, regulations of, of data privacy and all of that tends to re relocalize uh, even uh, what you know ought to be the most globalized part of the economy of all which is the digital so i think that actually unfortunately the, the momentum uh, is in the wrong direction that doesn't mean there isn't a battle to be had that there's a political battle to be had to, uh, in favor of, of greater openness um but I, I don't think that it's going to be a very difficult one so i think where do you sit um, on that battle, Simon? What side of the uh, barricades are you on? What kind of really strikes me is that I really do not know where our economies are heading because I do think that what a big thing that we've seen with responses to COVID-19 is that things that have seemed impossible for 20, 30, 40 years are all of a sudden back on the table. Um, and the, the exciting thing about that, I think, is that there kind of there are potentially new economic forms, forms that we've not seen before that could come. Let's in this last um, segment of, of this discussion look to to the to the future and see what thoughts we've got about how it might change the way we run our economies. I mean, John Key, do you see us having a fundamental rethink about these? structures or do you think that it's just going to be a, a, a desperate scramble to return to what we had before? Uh, I don't think we'll return in totality. Um, <clears throat> I mean, in a lot of practical sense, is actually um, one of the things we've learned is, you know, actually we can work pretty effectively and efficiently from rem remote locations and save commutes and, and uh, air pollution and a whole bunch of other things. So actually, I think, I don't think the world's going to never go back to an office building and all those kinds of things. But I do think that you will see uh, this has been quite a leap forward in terms of digital capability and people understanding what they can actually do um, you know, via a, a Zoom conference call or whatever. So I think you're going to see some changes there. I think, and look, I might be wrong, I'm viewing it a bit from a New Zealand lens and a, you know, uh, kind of trying to take a glass half full perspective on it. And that is, I can't help but wonder whether the people won't just sit back a little bit and say, wow, if a global pandemic can close the world economy and claim you know, far too many lives and all of these things, they might just slightly reassess what they think is important. And you know, whether New Zealand doesn't benefit a bit from that because we're a place with low number of cases and uh, we look maybe just sort of says to people, well, I really got to come and travel to a place like New Zealand or maybe come and live here or, I don't know, enjoy what we produce. I mean, I think they're those sort of changes. But, you know, they always say markets are driven by fear and greed. You know, there's been a fair bit of fear in recent times. But I don't know, that fundamental premise of making money and, you know, I think that'll return as rapidly. So... Uh, you know, it's a huge change at the moment. Will be, will it be so huge at the end of it? I don't think so, but there will definitely be some changes along the way for sure. Philippe? Well, I think uh, governments have rightly asked um, people to make a huge um, collective sacrifice for um, uh, the greater good. And I think that there will be expectations um, that those people who have made um, a big sacrifice at, at least uh, see a fairer society uh, coming out of that. Whether that actually happens in practice, uh, I think is going to be a key theme of the politics uh, in the year years ahead. Uh, I think Sir John is right that obviously technology um, has moved forward in leaps and bounds uh, in the space of uh, a few weeks, and that you know if there is an economic upside from it, is that some of the productivity gains that um, uh, from the better use of technology uh, might be realised or continue to be realised. Uh, in um, uh, the post-crisis world, and that in turn could make people better off. Um, one one kind of reversal of trend one could see is that you know for decades and decades, increasingly connectivity and people have located in in cities and proximity to other people has been seen as desirable. People are willing to pay more uh, in order to live in uh, smaller flats um, in close proximity uh, to, to to others. Uh, whether um, it's an open question whether in a post-pandemic world. Uh, where technology allows more remote working, uh, whether people will think actually it's safer um, and more convenient uh, to live at greater distance um, uh, from each other. I think if they chose to do so, I think there would be an economic cost because I think a lot of good ideas um, uh, and new technologies come from uh, people interacting with each other 
Uh, and while something like Zoom is fantastic, it's not the same uh, as um, crossing paths with people and those uh, serendipitous thoughts um, uh, that um, uh, emerge. That's right, isn't it? I think, is it Richard Harrison, the, the, the creative class idea that you create clusters back when clusters meant something positive? Um, and the idea that even if you are a tech company, you, you still want to do your deals in, in, in cafes in San Francisco rather than actually um, <laughs> doing them over Zoom, no disrespect to this current call. Sure, that's absolutely true, and and and, and you know, Zoom is fantastic, and nobody's uh, and nobody's disputing that we're better off uh, in this pandemic having them than before. And it's you know, I think many people will conclude that they don't need to make quite as many international business trips, but uh, it will it will suffice for many run-of-the-mill meetings. At the same time, face-to-face interaction is much richer um, and um, uh, permits um, greater creativity um, than uh, than the merely online kinds. Uh, and one has to hope um, uh, that once people are able and feel safe to interact uh, with each other again, um, they will continue to do so, not just socially, but also um, uh, productively. Simon, if I could finish with you, what are your hopes for how things will change for the good from this, some good that we'll take out of it? What I'd like to see is people organising around that, is kind of taking an active role in their kind of... uh, in their politics and stepping in and saying, this is what I value, how do I make this happen? And that's where I think we'll start to see real transformative change. All right, thank you very much, Simon. Simon Mayer, uh, Philippe Legrain and John Key. Thank you all for your thoughts and for your time and for your uh, assessment of how we are going to get through this and what change it will have for our economies around the world. So thanks very much for your thoughts and for your time. After the Virus is produced by RNZ, by me, Guy Espiner, and Justin Gregory. Claire Eastham Farrelly is the visual director. Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin are the executive producers. You can also watch this series on video, so head over to rnz.co.nz podcasts to catch that and for plenty of other great content. All RNZ podcasts are free to listen to and ad-free as well on rnz.co.nz and on the RNZ app. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.